listening to season two of Pod. We are sisters, one West Coast, one East Coast, one straight mom of toddler twins, one gay, uh, multiply divorced, <laughs> one lifelong gag of the Chrissy fan, one new reader. Season one got the two of us through the first shitty year of COVID. Follow along with us for season two as we drink and sometimes remember to talk about the book. Hello and welcome to Pod. Pod. Um, and today I... we are talking about Appointment with Death. Dun, dun, dun. Can, can I say that that title, I kept forgetting what the name of this book was because that title doesn't sync at all with what happens oh totally like you want it to be like someone get killed at the dentist office or something like (laughs) like appointment with death or like you know there's that one that's like a murder is announced like that makes sense because a murder is announced but like the appointment with death like there is no appointment in the whole (laughs) so like every time i would like be like no appointments every time i would go back to try to figure out where we were i was like Wait, which book is that? Because it, I don't, I it can't imprint that name won't imprint with the plot because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's true. It's true. It's yeah. It's odd. That's a very good point because I was having the tra- same trouble. And when you were like, "Oh, that's the next one," I was like, "That couldn't be that one because that doesn't make any sense." Right. Well, all right. Well, let's give us an overview. So this is from 1938. It's a Poirot who again is traveling because he does this. Right. Yeah. He basically Pravo is on the road. Like, yeah, they, he, like Agatha Christie has got, has married her archeologist husband and has gotten sick of village life or London life. So, so she's, she's all like, of, all of the mysteries now are Pravo on the road. So in this case, it's Jerusalem and then Petra. And if our mom was here, she would spend a half an hour telling you about Petra and how it's endangered and it's not actually where uh, what would Indiana she say about Jones... Petra? Because I do not know. I don't listen to... The third Indiana before. Jones movie where they found the um, Holy Grail. Uh-huh. Those, that archway mm-hmm. that they went into, uh, that's Petra. Okay. And it's there's actually no... When, there's no in... It doesn't go in like that. But there actually is. That's no... one of my favorite movies. Oh yeah, The Last Crusade. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that's a, good... a comfort movie. I'll just watch that just to like. But yeah, those arches that are um, built into the red rock—that's mm-hmm. Petra. Okay. But um, it's also like it's not as canyon as they make it look like. Right, um, I remember and, something taught me at some point that the way they had edited the film is not really how it is. And there's no inside, and it's a, a you know, it's a historic site and endangered because tourists, um, but, um, and it's a lot more rocky. But the red rocks, Agatha Christie does describe in here. They talk about the red rocks quite a mm-hmm. bit. But anyway, um, uh I've oh. heard a, a lecture about it from mom multiple times, which means that I actively try not to listen. So I've blocked out some of the important information. You know, you know how one I does. Mean, you you got like, more than I did. 
because you yeah. can say that much and i also was probably in the same conversation and i was just like thinking about like you know nonsense and like let me not learn this important information that my mother's imparting to me i'm just gonna right. be like shut up mom i'm thinking about rihanna i don't know <laughs> <laughs> okay so um anyway so they i'm start saying out that with- actually i referenced her because you, you're gonna think i'm lying but remember i told you i dreamt of your daughter the other night yes Yes. So she was in my dream the one night. It was delightful. And the following night, Rihanna was in my dream. Okay. I didn't interact with her, but she made eye contact with me and smiled at me twice. Wow. In the dream. So I'm pretty <laughs> sure, like, between Annika and Rihanna, like, think good things are happening at nighttime for me. That's good. That's good. I like it. So anyway, <laughs> this is a book where Praro is on vacation again. And it's it opens with him overhearing. Uh, he's on a boat. There's something outside Jerusalem. Yeah. yeah, he's on a he's on something. I thought he was on a boat because he basically the windows open and it's you know opens with the whole thing how like Praro has been raised to know that outside should should remain outside, <laughs> and so he goes to close the window, and yeah. as he's closing the window, he overhears a conversation where a man is saying to a woman, "You see that she's got to be killed." And Praro laughs to himself and says, ha, ha, ha. You know, I'm sure they're just talking about the play they're writing or whatever it is, right? He doesn't think that it's about actual murder. But then we cut to the guy saying that and he's saying to his sister, yeah, we've got to kill our stepmother. Um, And um, so at first you're like, huh, that's weird. Although they describe and say like he's, she's mad and like, there's no way out of this and you're like okay that's weird but um this is another one of those things that like he Perot, um this family dr gerard dr king like the fact that they were all in jerusalem and then they were all in petra which is in jordan close but it's not the same place like you have to travel between the two the fact that they were ran into each other at a right. boat or hotel in Jerusalem, and then they all were together later in Petra. Um, oh, and Lady Westholm too. There was all of the. There's a little bit of like, are there only seven uh, white people in right. the Middle all East? All these Europeans are in the Middle East. Yeah, it's very similar to the one with the. Uh, the wife with the, with the, oh dang it! Is it Desmond now? Yeah, with yeah, the yeah, Right, right. We the just one, did this. My memory. So we bad. just did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I it's mean, a, no, it's very it similar summer, to but... Death on the Nile, where these same Europeans are on the same different field trips, but they end up with the same thing. It's like they bought the same um, Groupon. Package. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and you know it's interesting because of course she's done a lot of like murder in a bottle and so we've been like ah it's a murder in a bottle but then when she doesn't do a murder in a bottle because you can't have that many characters in a book otherwise people get confused hello game of thrones um then if you have to limit the amount of characters and then it seems unrealistic like why are there's only 12 characters in a big city like jerusalem 
Right. And then those same 12 characters go on the same trip at the same time. And the funny so it's thing, a little bit... But then to me, I'm also like, when it comes to the way that Europeans and Americans act in places as tourists, that actually doesn't sound that surprising. Like, I don't really know. I haven't, from the time period, but it seems like, yeah, they're all like, again, not a Groupon, but they all... They, they tend to go to the same go. hotels. They tend to go to the same restaurants. Right, it's like a thing. Why people tend to like clump together. Right, even they, when they, they're traveling. These yeah. are the European friendly. Yeah, fair. You know what I mean? I don't the touristy yeah. whatevers. But I, but yeah. I think you make a good point about that. Like she, <laughs> their insular behavior makes it a murder in the bottle, even though it's not. Yeah, and by the way, for listeners who are starting here with our second season, murder in the bottle is. What we've been calling, like, when the classic um, Agatha Christie murder mystery of, or sometimes even other British, like Sherlock Holmes, where there's a cast of characters and they're all at one house and there's not extra people coming in. Right, because if the murder is in London and the suspects are all of London, it's very different than we're at a dinner party and it has to be someone in the room. And right. so we're we at a country house that and it's only as yeah. our rambling from an episode in a what is it the bottle episode where like you're in a you're stuck in the elevator the whole episode or something like that in a in a sitcom right right and that's so, called a yeah. bottle episode so then <laughs> somehow in our room we ended up calling it a murderly bottle to say that some of these it's like it's a finite list of suspects versus as you were pointing out all of london right or all of jerusalem or all of right but um, yeah and so we're sort of in these cases assuming that it's not all of Jerusalem because the bottleness is insular. Right. It's behavior. very insular. Yeah. And I'm willing to uh, kind of go to this idea that, you know, Europeans visiting the Middle East were all kind of directed to the same areas or the same hotels or, but um but there's a little bit of a no but you're right they're like not exactly the same hotel and not in the same order right and at the same time yeah that you, part, you, make you really point with that because yeah the odds of Hercule Poirot overhearing this and then later he's in Petra. at a different setting which is just like I feel like Death on the Nile where he overhears and he's like she loves him too much and then much much later interacts with the same couple so right, you, you make a good a point. Completely with that. different, yeah, yeah. So you have it's, to do a little some suspension of disbelief, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so then he kind of goes out of the picture for a while, right? He just hears that, and then he disappears for a while. So we get to know the Boyton family, uh, and who are Americans, Americans, uh, and then we, Sarah, we get to know them through the lens of Doctor Sarah King, who is fun, but she's a, a lady doctor. And also she's a just, baby doctor. Yeah, like, she's just graduating. And yeah, then uh, and then she also runs into an older doctor who's um, a psychi- psychiatrist or has yeah, something written in about that field. Yeah. But he is an MD and he's written about it and she's read his stuff. So there was a little bit of like, oh, I've read your books in school. Ah, right. You so know. Dr. Girard is a and he's French. French. Yeah. French, well-known person in the field, right? And, then, and probably with a psychiatric kind of like background, 
And then she's just finishing her exam. So she's like a brand new doctor. But um, he, he, he's a little bit of a mentor role to her, but he also, I feel like, um, empowers her to see her own information. Like, he's not like, oh, you kid. Like, I think they have a, you know, he's a very empowering mentor for random person in my field that I ran into. Yeah, and he, it was interesting because some of the stuff he said had a touch of creep. But it didn't actually come across that way. Wait, say more. Because um, a couple of times he would comment. Touch a creep. <laughs> say more. He would comment about her looks. About Sarah's? Know. Yeah. There was a couple of times like he said that she had, or it was to himself. Like it was his inner monologue. Uh-huh. He talked about her long black hair and her red mouth or something like that. Gross. Um, but he didn't say it to her. He dealt with her like a professional, although he did a couple of times was a little condescending, like you're only interested in it because you're interested in this guy, which he wasn't wrong. Right. He wasn't wrong when he saw like, are you interested in this professionally? Are you interested in this because you like that boy? Yeah. But so he wasn't wrong about that. And it didn't seem unrealistic. Yeah. Yeah. Like she kind of so, went in with a savior right, uh, right. mentality to, to save this young man. So, so yeah, so they're sort of our somewhat observers. observers. And yeah. then there's the Boynton family, which is this American family with this matriarch and a whole bunch of kids. It turns out most of them are her stepkids, but the dad is dead. But um, and sh- and the youngest, again, Ginevra, another... Uh, or Ginny was what they called her. Yeah, but I'm saying that's another Harry Potter reference. There's so many names that are... That are oh that's uh, true yeah but well, maybe but, uh, british people ha- only have like five names so you know. <laughs> possibly <laughs> i'm not trying to uh you know raise up everyone's disfavorite transphobe but there's a lot of the names that i have only heard from harry potter right um so it was like ginevra and then they call her do they call her Ginny? yeah they call her Ginny. yeah so i'm like that's a direct you know what I mean? Yeah. There's a, there's so many names, anyways. So she's the one who's and actually she has red hair, and she has red hair. So she's the only one who's the daughter of this matriarch. The rest of them, I think, they're all the stepkids of the matriarch. But the dad's dead, and although the money, there's money, lots of money, but the money is basically held in trust until the mom dies, and then it goes to the kids. So it's not like she has power; like she couldn't disinherit them. Because it's our, it's it's established from the beginning that the money is held in trust, and it, yeah, and she has, will she go to the it. kids no matter what. But she controls it right now. She controls it now, but despite that, and I thought this was important. Like when you brought up the analogy to scary matriarchs in our family, it doesn't have to be about money. And right, I appreciate and it didn't, that because and sometimes, like when reading it, you're like, well, why do they even? why are they scared of her? It's not like they, she can't disinherit them. And I was like, Oh, when we're scared of people, it's not because of money. Oh, it's, I mean, it's in our family because there isn't any. (laughs) Right. Like Like, it wasn't, you are scared for emotional reasons. And I, I was saying that because as a reader, I kept being like, why don't they just not be scared of her? And I was like, Oh, right. Because people can be scary. And it doesn't have to be about a financial reason for that. Right. So let me, so she has a, the youngest 
who they didn't really say the age range, but the oldest was in his mid twenties, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and then the the two that were practically twins, boy and uh, um, young man and young woman, were in their early twenties. So I'm guessing that Ginny was a teenager, sixteen. I think I thought yeah, maybe eighteen or nineteen. Like I I, I couldn't yeah, somewhere in there. I think they did tell us, but I didn't catch it. But, yeah, but um, she's she was a teen. She was a teen. Um, and then, yeah, so then she's got three older step-siblings whose dad is gone. But I can't remember how long he's been gone. No, I don't know either. Um, not like... It's been years, but not 10 years. Right. From what I remember. Um, anyway, and so the oldest is married to somebody who'd been trained as a nurse. Mm-hmm. And then there was the the two middle Nadine. ones. Nadine, yeah. So Lennox is the oldest boy, and he is married to Nadine Boyton. Um, but they're all clearly like are living with the family. Like no one has moved away. No one has gotten any education, and no one has moved away. They never went to school. They only and that's what's interesting because I felt like. I don't know if this is unrealistic or if it's just from the time period, because I know it's a thing for the British aristocracy to not get educated because it's like, well, I'm just going to, you know, tell servants what to do and ride these horses. So I don't have to get educated, but I don't know of American moneyed people who don't educate their children, but I, then maybe of that time, that was a thing where it could be like, we're just rich. So we're not, you're not going to get educated. Like, but also like so unrealistic or the, cause the story is, is that she controlled these kids. And one thing they told when they were trying to f- uncover what was going on, they said, we had governorses and they kept changing. So they never d- established a relationship with this, with a, um, an outside figure. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, CBS is getting called at some point. Like, yeah, they're rich, but these kids can't read. You know, like, that seems like... <laughs> right, right. Um, and they weren't so uneducated, I don't think they could read. But they felt... The reason it came up is because they all felt that they were trapped because they didn't have any skills that they could market. They couldn't go get a job and earn their own living. So they were all stuck living with her. And so the, yeah, the interesting thing was, is that through the lens of Dr. Gerard and Dr. King, they observed this family at this hotel and Dr. Gerard is kind of interested at first, not really, until Dr. King is like, don't you think this family is weird? And Dr. Gerard said, well, you just like the middle son. You think he's cute. You like him. And the middle son is, what's his name? Raymond. 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 Right. Um, so Sarah and Raymond have a moment and then they have, a, they have a moment where they're chatting and everything's cool and then like the next time she sees him he's like all weird and skittish because his mom is looking. So that's and, when Sarah starts to take notice that like the mom is like the, the dynamic is very strange. And at first Sarah's just like insulted like you were talking to me and now you're not. Hey you're ghosting me. Right. <laughs> and then she's like oh wait a second. You know like you're being controlled and then Dr. Gerard starts observing it too. So basically, these four young people, plus then Nadine, who had married Lennox, all lived there in America. This is the first trip they'd ever been on. Did women forget where in the States they were supposed to be? 
Mm-mm. They don't think America. they are <laughs> um, But they don't travel. They've never traveled. And they were under the control of this woman who was actually physically very ill. And of course, in good Agatha Christie fashion, she described her over and over as ugly. Yeah. Mostly Dr. Gerard. Described yeah. Heavy and ugly. Um, kind of getting but, a, to- a toad-like appearance. Well, yeah, we talked, yeah, there was definitely the toad-like thing where you're like, really? But yeah. So um, the so what I so that you start to get the picture of this family and this is where it's interesting yeah because if you've not known a tyrannical matriarch in your life you might have read this and thought what because there were times when they were like I'm gonna go talk to this person and she would look at him and go no you're not or even they would be like everyone's gonna do something and then the mom would be like but Ginevra you're tired you need to go lay down and Ginevra's like no I'm not I'm fine I want to go with everybody and she's like you're tired you're going to go lay down and Ginevra's like okay I am and it just seems so like what is like how would that even work but if you've ever seen that and we have right and and you pointed it out to me because I was literally reading this like this is unrealistic they're not beholden to her because as soon as she dies, they inherit. So why why are they so scared of her? And then I was like, oh, right. I'm scared of most of the people in my life for non-financial reasons. <laughs> you know, like, I was like, you make such a good point of that, that it's not about money. And it's really oversimplifying the human condition to be like, you know, we are manipulated because of I'm scared for any money reasons. It's most of the things that we that part of us that comes up that's fearful isn't about money yeah it's about love and control and and so that the more we observe this family the more it's like this woman enjoys control and has a sadistic thrill from controlling people and taking away from things they love and enjoys the thrill of it of you know like control and has a malicious glee in their suffering yeah and the tyrannical matriarch that we knew i don't think took malicious glee in suffering no but she also didn't have the effect on me that i saw her have effect on others where i saw with my eyes as a child of somebody saying, we're going to do the thing. And then the matriarch saying, you're not going to do the thing. And then they're like, I'm not going to do the thing. And you're like, what the hell just happened? Right. Like, I, yeah, and it, I, think, I think it was because of our generation that it wasn't that scary for us. Right. But for we were our like, generation, it we was were like, very scary. And we were like Nadine. In the so sense Nadine of is the wife of Lennox who married into this and is like, I'm not scared of her. Like, why are you guys all being such punks about this? But she still was affected by her because her husband was controlled. They couldn't leave. They couldn't have kids. They couldn't do anything. They were so... Right, so behind closed doors, she'd be like, come on, Lennox, let's let's do something. Let's break out of this. Let's." And that's what I'm talking about, that conversation, when Lennox is like, 
I have no training. I have no education. I can't earn a living. And she's like, well, I'm trained as a nurse. You can do something. We'll be fine. Let's go figure it out. And he's just so fearful that he is not willing and to like so set off with his wife who loves her him, you know? Right. Yeah. And it's and so it's an interesting thing because um I have and I also have had a conversation with the tyrannical matriarch where I was like, No, that's not the way that I do things. And she smiled and said, Oh yes, it is. And I'm like, no, it's not. And I remember having Did you this, have like, a conversation like that. Oh my gosh, it was. You're, I was, you're being really like um, fun about it. I think I think it's okay to say that our our, our grandmother is the person. Grandmother. Well, like, you started it by saying in our own life, but yeah. So I'm. No, I was saying you're like acting like as if we're protecting her HIPAA, and I'm like, it, it, I think it's okay to. Say. Our grandmother yeah. was a scary person, too. No, so we were. I, I think. I, I don't know if it was just me who spent the night or you were young enough that you weren't in the room, but it was something about brushing my teeth. And it was like, um, and you know, cause she was trying to get my brush my teeth and I was logically saying, well, when I'm at home, what I do is I brush my teeth at night. So I don't brush my teeth right now. I don't know if it was in the morning or, you know, I can't remember, but I was like, so that's not what I do in my routine at home. And I was very logical. Like, that's how I felt. And she just smiled and stood in front of the bathroom door with that June smile where it was like, okay, perhaps you're not hearing me. I, is there something like I was trying to logically. Right, and it, it, it was interesting is that like, it's not that adults can disagree about that because like, I do remember her having a different policy than our parents on morning toothbrushing. And it turns out like, I agree with her. You should brush your morning right. teeth in the morning as well. But the point is not the argument, but the way that she handled it. It wasn't like, well, in my house, we brush our teeth in the morning. So get in there and brush your damn teeth, kid. Right, which would have been fine. Right, it which was, is it what was our other grandmother would have way, said. Right, it was the way that she managed behavior, which was this like very extremely passive aggressive. Like I think I would say extremely passive and extremely aggressive. Right, but like this weird smile where I was like, "Okay, I'm I'm going crazy. I'm saying words and you're not acknowledging them. You're just smiling and nothing has changed. It's like." no acknowledgement that I said words at all, which is crazy making and so disempowering, right? Because yeah. like if she had said, well, it's my house, my rules, then I would have had something to go, oh, to provide, okay. Right. Or to say, okay, fair, you know, but she didn't, she just did the thing where she, and the smile was this kind of like, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Like, I'm going to eat you smile. Like, <laughs> you know, or I was, and that was like, I remember this moment where I was like, okay, well, at least I only have to deal with this for the two nights that I'm staying here. Yeah. But then like realizing that power of the grown women that we knew of where I'm like, oh, you guys just won't contradict her at all. And if you do, you cry about it, you know, like, or it's like, like, the did you ever thing. see the actual um, movie Gaslight? Mm -mm. 
where the term came from no, no. I, I know about it no i actually recommend you see it so my partner b actually had was watching it or had me watch it and like it's actually powerful to see the metaphor in action because the lights are getting dimmer and she's like the lights are getting dimmer and her husband's like no they're not but the lights are getting dimmer but he's like no they're not getting dimmer and when you actually see the actual physical manifestation of what you know now we use it as a metaphor you're just like that's what it's like where you're just like my reality is changing and i'm being told that it's not or my reality is a but i'm being told that it's b and so to see that and like how that actually makes your brain break right so like you're being told like again in that smile there's so much held in that smile and that's what miss to bring it back to the book that's what mrs boynton has is this power to be like and she fucks with them on purpose like she when she realizes that her son is attracted to this young doctor she's like sends him on an errand to go pick up something for her like a magazine or something close to the young woman but he doesn't tell her not doesn't even tell him not to talk to her he just knows he already knows that he's in trouble for having made a connection Right, and he's she's like, go get me this, you know, magazine. And he walks over there, and he's so terrified of his mother, and he knows he's being observed, that he totally like cold shoulders and ghosts the young doctor he had just been talking to, without even being told to do it, because he knows the rules are you're not allowed to make these connections. And then um, Sarah describes from her point of view, she's like, what the hell? She sees that it's coming from the mom. And looks and expects to see hatred coming, like in her eyes, but more she just sees malicious glee. Right. And this is where, because our grandmother, I don't think she did it to be malicious. No. I think she did it because the world was incredibly frightening to her. And the only way to make it not frightening was to try to control the part that she could. And she had children who were growing up in the 60s and, of course, could not control them. And she did her best to, like, push them the way that she wanted them to. And so, like, because I never saw her as a evil malicious person the way they described mrs boyton but it's interesting no, yeah and, and i think that actually happens a lot when you look at people who have had a negative energy or abusive energy in your life and you stop and say was it malicious or was it there's their own trauma acting out or whatever right and so i think you know in this case agatha christie makes her like a villain's villain so that we're happy for to have her die mm-hmm. right and just like our grandmother like other people that have been in my life like sometimes at certain points i would see them that way i would be like they're they're a sadist right and then when you actually get more distance from the situation you're actually no they're not a sadist they're just this is you know this yeah this is just and and actually that's how sarah remember at the end right and then when sarah's like actually pity you Right, And so that's the thing. is, And so I, I do think as you get more distance from these situations, and that's not like there aren't sadists out there, but I think a lot of times people who have these behaviors, you could, you could watch it with one lens and say it's sadistic, and then you could watch it again and be like, oh, like you said, 
this is your own trauma acting out. This is your way of trying to find control. This is your way of trying to keep your kids from getting killed or your own fear of whatever it is. Yeah, but, and but she definitely paints her with the, um, you know, the narrator's lens as a sadist. But I also think that, you know, the same situation could be written as just like, this is a controlling woman. And maybe it's because she's trying to protect her family from something. But either way, it comes out. Or they, she's basically got them on puppet strings, and everyone right. is frightened of her. And it's and it's interesting because that um, realization that I had made that connection between her and June, uh, I never actually thought until very recently. Like it's not like when until we're reading it for this for the podcast, or when I told you I was like, "How? Oh, oh, that book! I don't like that book. Why don't I like that book?" Oh, I think because, and it wasn't that the Terrianical matriarch reminded me of my grandmother so much. It's that her children reminded me of our mother and our aunt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that part was sad. Yeah, yeah. The behavior where you because like as the reader, you're just like just go like she's really not holding anything over you what's wrong with you why are you so paralyzed by her and why again you know in the fictitious world is the only answer to kill her <laughs> we're not we're not turning this yeah, into a true life but podcast our grandmother lived to almost 100 she was not killed right but she like not killed with that thing but like i do think that there's that thing where like the only release is death because yeah. her personality was so oppressive to them. Right. And it's true and not true. And we can talk about that. But like. Um, but it's like, what is she holding? Like, she literally had no power. She had no power. But the amount but of time. It. Like, she had absolute power. She <laughs> would say something when we were visiting. And then we would come back home. And then mom would be bawling. Because her mom had said something that we were like. Or not said something. Or not said something, or gave her the silent treatment. Yeah, a lot of times it was about the, what she didn't say, or the look she gave, or the right. And so you and I would be like, "What?" But she would be bawling because she, uh, our mom's heart would be broken again by right. her emotionally abusive mother, and we would be like, "Okay, she was nothing bitchy. happened though." Because like I was in the room with you the whole time, and nothing happened. But it's always silent. Right, which is silent. Which like, is interesting yeah. because actually, um, my partner and her mother also communicate that way. Like they'll be in a huge fight, and I was there, and I didn't see anything. And then they <laughs> no. made up, and also, I also were, didn't see anything. You didn't. You missed the whole thing. I'm like, yeah, and like I'll just know because he's like, can you believe that? And I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> and then she's like, I guess everything's fine now. And I'm like. Also, what just happened? Like, <laughs> it's just all this silent communication. Where I'm just like, I don't, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Like, yeah, I can't, I, I can't even, I can't even. But you I know mean, me. Their energy I, is so strong. To tell you, give the example. Like, when uh, our Julie, Aunt Julie was visiting us, we went to dinner with me and her mom, and Julie was like big eyes on her best behavior <laughs> and that's julie like that takes a lot for her to like right like, let me just sit back and listen for a minute because i don't know what's happening here <laughs> she was definitely like there's a lot of a lot of energy going on i'm just saying that like i feel like you know julie's a big personality 
yeah. For her to sit back and be like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> but the silent fights are so confusing. I can't even. But anyway. Back to so, the book. Back to the book. So so anyway, so the like that's the premise. The and premise then... is that, yeah, there's this woman who's, and it's, she's painted so blatantly. Like she's ruining all of her children's life. They think the youngest, like the, the youngest one is like, clearly her older siblings are worried about her and are like, we have to kill our mom because to save her. she pretends her. to be out of it and then she has fantasies and then they say that underneath the table she'll have like a dreamy face and then underneath the table she was ripping up a handkerchief. Right. She's like, like and, then, and then she like, at some point she like reaches out to Prara or something and is like, I'm a secret princess and they've kidnapped me and like, She's she's definitely like, yeah, fantasy world as, uh, on the edge of either losing it or, yeah, just basically but psychologically course, at risk. But you know, and she's the one gross. we see that the the mom kind of targets in some ways the most because she's like the one who she's like you can't do even yeah. she has no one can do anything right but even but the little bit they to... do do she's like no you can't go with them to dinner you need to go to bed because you have down. a headache and she's like i don't have a headache she's like you do go to bed right and um what was i gonna say about that oh lost my train of thought on that dang it i had a thought and then you talked about the headache thing and i got distracted okay uh the oh. Gen- ginevra shoot um the siblings are worried about her oh oh and then it turns out and perot points this out later when they're trying to figure out that actually she's the most psychologically healthy because what she's done is what kids with trauma do and that's create a fantasy world right where she can escape to so that this world isn't real and so she can escape to the fantasy world And that's actually a very healthy way that kids do when they have trauma. Right. They create a fantasy world and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. Doesn't mean she's going insane. It means that she's protecting herself from the situation she's in. Because again, if you're being gaslit and you're, you're being told down is up, then at least you can like paint yourself a fantasy world where you can control it. Right. Right. So anyway, so then, um, on the last day of the hotel or something, um, when Sarah, oh, Sarah connects with Carol, which is the the sister, mm-hmm. and gets Carol to come and drink some tea in the hotel room and hang out, and that's where she finds out some stuff about the family. And Carol's like, you can't tell anybody I was here, and and, you know, like, and my brother, I just want to apologize for him, and Sarah's like, okay, well, how about you and him come tomorrow night? And then Carol goes back to the hotel room and Mrs. Boynton's there and's like, where were you? And she tells her because she has ultimate control and says, you're going to never speak to her again. And she's like, okay. And yeah, the amount of control, if you've never seen this happen, it's sort of unbelievable, but it's also like, it's believable. It's, you know. Right. When someone really does have that kind of psychological control over you. Yeah. Yeah. So then Sarah like does her thing, which is pretty astute of like, you're not evil. You're just pathetic and you need something to control. So you're trying to control. And she kind of gives her this little speech. She's like, basically like, 
as a tyrant go, you don't have a country, you don't have a, a company, right. you don't even have a cult. You have this little family. She doesn't, I mean, I'm over paraphrasing, mm -hmm. but that's how she sees it. She's like, okay, right. you have this sadistic personality. You want to be able to be this, you know, dominating personality. And she's imagining her like commanding armies or whatever. And like, all you've got is these like four people under your control. Good for you. Great. Right. You I know, feel sorry for you. I yeah. feel sorry for you. Like you have all this like ambition and it's, you know, it's comes out in such this, this little meager way. And then Mrs. Boynton says something back, which was weird. She looks really mean and is looking, not even looking at Sarah and says, I never forget a face and I never forget any details. And Sarah's like, uh, uh, okay, whatever. And then Sarah goes off to Petra with Dr. Gerard and is like, well, screw those people. But then, um, and then she's traveling with Lady Westholm and Mrs. Pierce, right? Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And Lady Westholm okay. is a member of parliament who was married to, she was also an American. Yeah, she was an American and married. Uh, but she doesn't Lord. speak like an American. So we forget that because at least well, in the audiobook, she's. Right. Oh, yeah. Doesn't doesn't speak American, you know, with American accent. And I think that that's the thing is that she sort of like tried to erase her past. Um, yeah. And so she she, she she came to England and married well. She and married now she's a politician. Lord Westholm, and Lord Westholm was a member of parliament. And then she was pushing around. And then it turned out that he was like, I don't actually care about politics. You care about politics. So she became a member of parliament. And he was like, I just want to, you know, golf and stuff. <laughs> and um, so, anyway, so Lady Westholm, and then Mrs. Pierce is like, a her sidekick yeah a fluttery british lady who's like um who flutters i don't know what else and she describe. seems very intimidated by lady westholm and is kind of her sidekick at least for the purposes of this trip yeah but she also seems intimidated by a lot of things right so um and then so they travel from jerusalem to petra and so sarah's like oh okay, well, that was weird with the family, but I'm enjoying my trip, and now we're going to get to these tents where they have a, I don't know, encampment or something. Right, so they and, get to this encampment, and you can either choose to stay in a tent or in a cave. And what does Sarah see as they come up to the tents? Mrs. Boynton and the family crowd. Yeah. And Mrs. Boynton is sitting in the cave looking evil, and Sarah's like, oh, fuck. And not yeah. just looking evil. Again, this is where the, the writing goes real like she's looking like a fat Buddha outside her sitting in the door of her whatever and you're just like, ooh. Like it just, it's, it's very derogatory. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and there was also this running thing about their um, interpreter who was a um, probably a Jordanian or a Palestinian although they wouldn't have used those words. Um, he, but his name was Muhammad. And he was apparently tirading about Jewish people moving into his land. Right. It was 1938. So this was when Jewish people were like, hey, before World War II actually does the thing, hey, maybe we should have a place. And people are like, no, you can't have a place. But also the Palestinians were like, but we're here. 
But right. of course, Britain controlled all of it. So layers, layers. So there was that little side thing because apparently, yeah, there they was didn't that. even say what he said. They just said he was kind of pissed about Jewish people moving in. Yeah. Um. Or you know, but it. Um. And they didn't call it anti-Semitic. They called it anti-Zionist, which right. And, yeah, and, and they sort of said, yeah, sometimes they were able to avoid his speeches and sometimes they couldn't avoid his speeches. But they and just he, said that he was kind of... going to these speeches, yeah. Yeah, that he would go into these speeches in between, like... As, like, driving them to wherever or, yeah, interpreting for them. But it's interesting, especially what we know what happened after... Well, then came World War II, because this was 38. So, obviously, this was an issue... Um, and then the creation of the state of Israel. So like, there's all sorts of layers in there. And I didn't think it, it was more anti-Muslim um, or maybe anti-Palestinian because they were kind of making fun of him for being frustrated. Mm -hmm. um, but they didn't go into any details. They just said that when he would give a chance in between his interpretations, he would Right, that he would have these rants. Yeah, that he would, yeah. And then they had to be like, all right, all right, all right. Don't, we don't want to hear that. Yeah, so anyway, so there's this... Yeah, so it wasn't anti-Semitic, but it was, yeah, maybe anti... Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so, but, yeah, because we've known... And how interesting, because I actually wouldn't have known that that tension was already present prior to World War II. That's not something I was aware of. Right, because, yeah, because Zionists started saying that Jewish people should have a homeland in the area. This is, again, thank you, Mom. Uh, but they started asking for this in the 20s. Um, oh, okay. But this was, of course, a British colony and people what were like... What is a British colony? Right. Um, uh, and people were like, well, I don't know. You seem fine there in Germany and Poland. <laughs> oh. You know, yeah. I mean, like, like all sorts of things. Oh, no. But then... But people did start moving to that area. Jewish people from Ger from uh, Europe did start moving there. Prior and, to World War II. Interesting. Yeah, not a lot, but anyway. And now, yeah, so layers. Um, so there was that side note. So they're kind of traveling from Jerusalem to Petra with um, Lady Westholm, Mrs. Pierce, it's Dr. Gerard and Dr. King. Um, and their interpreter, but then they get to Petra and the Boytons are there and Sarah's like, oh, fuck. Right. Here we go again. Um, oh, but we forgot to talk about Jefferson Cope. Oh, right. So it's interesting because so, so the oldest kid mm -hmm. is Lennox Boyton and he's married to Nadine. Turns out the reason he's married, because he's in this very insular family, right, where no one can get out. The reason he has actually has a wife is because apparently... When he was getting to be in his 20s, he was starting to sneak out and go to like dances or I don't know, some young people stuff. And his mother was like, absolutely not. And she brought in, again, consanguinity, brought in a poor relation who was trained as a nurse to help her maybe, like maybe as a nurse for herself or maybe for her husband back when he was still alive, who was Nadine, knowing that she was an attractive young person. And basically, Nadine and Lennox fell in love and married under her right. puppeteering she, right. so that he would, like, that outlet that he needed to, like, you know, be a sexual person was now. But then instead of going off somewhere, they just both lived at the house. 
Right. So basically, Nadine, Nadine got trapped, but it was a way of controlling Lennox's urge to date or do whatever. And then, so Jefferson Cope was an old friend of Nadine's who then, like, started getting... Which is funny, because if you think about this, like, that old friend thing, like, right. she was a kid when she came there, so, like, how did she have this old friend? Like, the old friend from middle school? Yeah. <laughs> how old? But yeah, so but- this... He was this like, guy is like a friend of hers who's basically been tagging along this whole time, seeing her miserable, doing the whole like my best friend's wedding thing, and being in love with her and waiting for her marriage to fall not, apart. And he was more like, Oh, your husband's no bad news. But that was back when they were in America. But then on this trip, he was like, Oh, maybe it's not your husband. Your mom seems a little bit controlling. You know, See, like that's funny because I still interpreted what he said it is basically like yeah I'm waiting I'm waiting for that marriage to fall apart well true but at first he was like it's your husband bad news but then he was like it's weird she seems so controlling and protective how odd and then Dr. Gerard and Dr. King when they talked to um, Jefferson Cope would be like um, no she's a sadist and he's like what is she you know, yeah he was definitely like I don't know, clueless or not, you know, he was definitely like... Yeah, but he was definitely like a guy waiting in the rings, and it's hilarious because they're on vacation, and he's there. Like, he's tagged along on vacation, and then when you see the interactions with the mom, she's encouraged it, because she would love to get rid of Nadine, because in the end of the day, she just wants her kids under her control, and Nadine keeps trying to, like, sidebar Lennox and get him to, like, go off on their own so she's like plus basically encouraging jefferson and would love for nadine to run off with jefferson or for nadine to just break lennox's heart because then he would be more controllable right even more either way she just wants to get rid of right so she's a she's very uh, um welcoming of jefferson because then is like oh what a nice lady yeah right so yeah so it's a weird anyway so he's also there at Petra because, you know, there's only 12 white people in the Middle East. Um, and so then, like, they eat together or... Anyway, um, so this is, it's the Boynton family, Jefferson Cope, Dr. King, Dr. Gerard, Lady Westholm, Mrs. Pierce, and then, like... And some point involved. Right, but not yet. Random, um, unnamed um, guides. They call them dragomons, which I looked up, which is basically means guide or interpreter. Um, and then the one main guide or interpreter that they would complain about his, his rants. Um, but um, then, uh, so those are all the people there. And then something they mrs boyton says something really weird she says this afternoon you all should go for a walk without me which is so weird because she never lets anyone out of her sight and this whole time there's been all these build-ups where they will be like we're at this historical site everyone's gonna go see this amazing thing that's like a bucket list thing to do and she'll be like my family doesn't want to do that and even when people are like 
Well, I know you are not that able, Mrs. Boynton, but maybe a couple people could stay with you and like some other members of the family could go through this bucket list thing to go see. And she'd be right. like, we don't want to do that, right, family? Right. And you're all like, no, mother, we don't want to do that. <laughs> God. And it's just like, and you're, you're, that was the parts that hurt me because I was like, oh my God, you're, when are the, when's the next time you're going to be in Petra? When's the next time you're going to be in Jordan? When's the next time you like, this is like, these are amazing opportunities that you're missing out on because your mother's like, we don't want to do that. Right. And then they're all like borging and are just like, we don't want to do that. And so, right. so annoying. But anyway, this one day she's like, yeah, everyone go off without me. Do your thing. I'll be cool. And you're like, what? Because that is, doesn't track with her behavior at all. Yeah. And so Sarah says something like, this seems weird, but okay. And so she, because, oh, oh, I forgot. Because as soon as they get to Petra, Lennox sees her and he's like, oh my God, it's you. I've been thinking about you because actually I love you. <laughs> Which I was like, dude. Right. Okay. It, it, it goes very um, man in the brown suit love there. Like, but wait, away, with like, that note, let's come back to their, bitch. let's go back to uh, their damaged love. Sounds good. Okay. Okay, we're back. Okay, we were talking about... Let's talk about the love that... Lennox... No, not Lennox. Raymond was like... I was going to call him Jeremy. (laughs) Raymond. (laughs) Jeremy Boynton. Nope. (laughs) Raymond was like, oh my god, it's you. I was dreaming about He was you. like, I'm you. so sorry I was rude because my mom's crazy, but it turns out I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Oh, wait, my mom's coming. I gotta go hide. <laughs> what? <laughs> right. And so Sarah's like, okay, lots of layers, but you need help. Like, my help. Not like... Right. She know. doesn't say, no, this is unhealthy. We shouldn't date you need some years of therapy she's like come into she, my my like young padme, bosom like padme amidala when <laughs> anakin was like i killed all of them padme like oh let me hold you not psycho okay um which worked out real well for her too yeah i know right so although she did get those those twins yeah so um, anyway, so there's that. And so then, you know, that was before Mrs. Boynton was like, everyone should get the afternoon off without me. And Sarah's right. like... Right, so he's confessed his secret love to her. Secret love. <laughs> 80s R&D. Okay. <laughs> what is that, Phil Collins and someone? Oh, God. And now I have to look. Now you have to look. See what you did there? Oh, it's Atlantic Star? Oh, it's Atlantic Star. In my head, it had gone um, Genesis. Oh, wow. Well, I had that record. Yeah, you did. You had the record, which is why I know all those songs, because you had the record. The literal vinyl. Okay. Not not even to be old school. That just was the way we had music at that time. I mean, it was 1987. Like, or six or something like that by the way there's a song on that record called electricity like it's great great starting it right you know that so 85 85 
every year when I teach economics and I teach supply and demand, there's a freight, you know, some, a concept within supply and demand that you only know if you study supply and demand for a second in high school. And then if you study microeconomics in college and no one else pays attention, but it's elasticity of supply or elasticity of some demand. And so whenever I say elasticity, that song plays in my head. And there have been years where I've been like elasticity and then the kids are staring at me and I'm like, okay, I have yeah. to explain what song is in my head when I say that word. No. And then I have to play 85. That's Midnight Star, not Atlantic Star. Oh, that's it's a different Midnight star. star. I think star. you had Midnight Star, not Atlantic Star, which is why I got I had Midnight Because I actually know every Midnight Star song because you having the albums and me being your, you know, disciple. Atlantic right. Star was more ballady. You're right. Which is why right. I went Genesis in my brain. You're right. Atlantic Star is different than Midnight Star. Which I did not um, know until same. Google Google corrected me. I was like, did you mean I, Midnight Star? Because yeah, that's very like no parking on the dance floor. Right. But um, there's a lot of stars. Uh, Freakazoid. Freakazoid. Uh, yes, that's Midnight Star. But yeah, Atlantic Star. You're right. Did the ballads? Oh, Secret Love. Okay, you're right. And that, yeah, okay, you're right. Which I was not right. I didn't remember any of this until Google <laughs> told me because I was giving I was giving Phil Collins Secret Lover. But it was but it was a woman. I think it was a man and woman duet. Yeah, I think that's what Atlantic Star was. Yeah. Atlantic Star is a band based in White Plains, New York. They had uh, their main hits were Always. Oh, they were the one that did Always. Like Secret Always Lovers. and Forever. Yeah. No, 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 no. Always and no, not that one. I'm gonna be ashamed to sing it, but like I'm gonna yes! edit that out because I cannot <laughs> sing. Um, but that always. So yeah, it's definitely hey, a ballad that was, band. That was tune adjacent because I got it. <laughs> <laughs> like I understood the reference. And their star has two R's, whereas Midnight Star only has one R. Thanks, wow. Google. <laughs> Remember the old okay. days when we would just be like, let's look it up in the encyclopedia that we have from 1972 <laughs> and see what the general knowledge was on that. Now I can just like type with my I fingers. know, because then you would have arguments for days. You know, because you couldn't find and it anyway. Arguments would be unresolved with people because be like, well, my mom says this is true. Like, well, right. my mom says this is true. And we have an encyclopedia. Well, we have an encyclopedia or we have a set of beliefs. <laughs> Right. Okay. But now you Oh, can, but now you have oh all the knowledge but also all the nonsense. It's not better, mm -hmm. it's just different. Yeah, it's not better, it's just different. <laughs> okay. All right. Focus. Um, back, back. Focus. Bobby ate a sandwich. Bobby <laughs> ate a sandwich. Bobby had a controlling matriarch. <laughs> <laughs> um so uh Reminds me, by the way, that I got to tell you my review of the Netflix movie Red Notice. Um, but okay. That's What's it story. called? Red Notice. Okay. So, but okay. Well, let me just tell you while we're here. You can decide if you want to add this out or not. But it's like a new one with Ryan Reynolds, uh, Dwayne Johnson, and Gail Godot. And it wants to be. I think I know who those people are. Yeah, you I'm do. really impressed with me. And 
it wants to be a heist movie, which I love, or Indiana Jones, and it does a lot of referential things, like with those kinds of things, and um, and in some ways it's fun in the action. Like they spend a bunch of money going to like different locations and stuff, so it's got a little Bond feel to it, and but like there's a tango between Dwayne the Rock Johnson and and Wonder Woman and it is the least sexy tango you've ever seen and wait it's a literal tango you're not using this as a as no, a, it's not a metaphor. analogy it's like, for an emotional actually they're tangoing to a song by Pink Martini local Portland band ooh it's a great song but like they better get the royalties i know right but Oh but they it's it's no son of a woman. It it's not son of a woman. It's not the one from Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It's, it's not, not even the one from True Lies. It's not like, even jo- Jojo Siwa on uh, Dancing with the Stars. No, it, there's no heat. <laughs> like there's no heat, and they're trying so hard to have heat, and like there's no heat, and so there's supposed to be heat all the way through, and then anyway. Why is that? Is she gay? Like the actress. I have no idea. But you, I mean, because I have cast people before and I've had that problem where it's like I've cast actors who are the best actors and then you put them in the love story and like you can't believe the doesn't... love story. And then like that's the whole crux of the, the story of Greece and there was no chemistry between the main actors and so it kind of just falls apart if you have no mm-hmm. chemistry. So after that, I was like, okay, I have, have to, to make sure. You have to look just... at the chemistry. Yeah. And um, and there's just no chemistry between them. And I've heard that you can have chemistry in real life or people could actually be in love. And then when they try to act it, it doesn't work. It's it's not, there's no correlation. Correlation. Correlation, thank you. Between like actual heat and heat that you can act Okay. Because um, okay. I've okay. seen it happen both ways. Like people who actually were attracted to each other that I was directing and people who and got too hated nervous or something. Yeah. Um, so I've he- seen it happen all sorts of different ways. But you have to actually have the people act around each other and then you're like, oh. So, um, but there's just no chemistry at all. And Dwayne Johnson is huge in that like not in the way that I find attractive. I know I like big guys, but he's like, you know, no neck, you know, huge shoulders, which <laughs> doesn't necessarily appeal to me. Uh, but he's not a unattractive person, and she's right. not an unattractive person. But I'm, I'm just like, I never bought it. So some of it's fun, <laughs> and the story would be fun, and there's twists and turns, and it's like, what's it called? You know, Red Notice. Red Notice. I was but, like, pink slip. No. Red <laughs> Right. Um, and there's some part of the stories where you're like, I don't know if I, what? Did that make sense? But like the story would be okay. Because there's other parts of other movies that you're like, it would be okay. But the main problem for me is there's just no chemistry between these people who are supposed to have heat. Also, them. isn't he probably 25 years older than her? And I know that Hollywood doesn't mind that, but I do. Oh, I yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a good question. How right? Much, how, um, no, no, now I have to look, look it up. Now I gotta look it up. 
see. Anyway, Rob I'd be curious. Age 49. Oh, really? He's the same age as me. Okay. Gado. Definitely spelling all those things wrong. Is 34. 30. That's not that bad. 15 years. That's not bad. She's in her 30s. He's almost 50. That's like she's mid 30s. He's almost 50. That's not gross. Right. It's not like she's 24 and he's almost 50. Right. Like, like no- that's enough yeah. that like still I wish Hollywood cared more for women as they right. pass 40, but it, it's right. not gross. Yeah, I kind of. Um... If you and B ever watch the movie, um, okay. that would be my yeah, because it's trying to be Indiana Jones ish, you know, or and heist I love that genre. I love a heist, I love an adventure, I love a yeah, so try I love it. a heist venture. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely trying to be a heist venture, but like, yeah, it just so doesn't quite work, it doesn't quite work, and it also has a you know, a bromance between the two men. Does that also does, does that have chemistry or no? No. Yeah. So anyway, I'd be curious. You guys should watch it, and then I want to hear both you and B's. Uh, Bobby got a sandwich. Bobby got a sandwich. So, um, we, uh, okay. So they Bobby got a Wait, sandwich. Mrs. No one's Boynton, died yet. Mrs. Boynton told them to go for a walk. Right. That's where we were. We keep getting stuck at Mrs. Mrs. Boynton. Boynton gets rid of her family. Is the Bobby got a sandwich, which is which is important because she never let them out of her sight. So this one day she's like, everyone should go do a thing, and they're like, okay, mom, are you? So sure? then, like Ginny's like traipsing, and Sarah's like gets a chance to talk to Raymond alone for a while. They're like holding hands, and then Dean and Lennox are like having it out and Nadine's like I'm leaving because this isn't you're not responding to anything and, and no and she didn't just say I'm leaving she said come with me let's start a new life and she he said I'm too scared and speaking of I mean luckily I don't think anyone in the family cares enough to listen to <laughs> this podcast but like speaking of that that conversation between Nadine, once you flagged it for me about like the matriarch reminding you of our grandmother, that conversation between Nadine and Lennox reminded me of at least the way it's been told to me of conversations between our, our mom and our aunt, where it's like, you know, come with me to this new world. I'm too scared. Right. I just Right. Wanna, and then it, yeah, where the drink, person is yeah. like, you know, you know, because so in in the context of the book, you know, Nadine's like, why? And again, as the reader, you're like, why are you even scared? Like, yeah, you'll be broke for a while, but as soon as that bitch dies, you'll have money. It's everything's fine. Like, just go and like, you know, work at a Starbucks or you know, 1930 Starbucks. Like, so like that's what. <laughs> saying like <laughs> what is the 1930 starbucks i'm just trying to imagine what that but is i'm just saying that like that's that's what we would say now right like if you had to start right. all over you'd be like oh we're getting a starbucks and i feel like right that's movie theater what nadine is else. saying is like yeah you don't have a formal education you're not going to go in as a banker but you can work at a job and i'm a nurse i have training we can get by and he's just like literally emotionally captive and can't see any path through but he's also like when she says, okay, then I'm leaving, he's like, don't leave me. I can't believe you're leaving me. I go, oh, blah, blah, blah. 
mother would never have it. <laughs> but he's he's like so like can't believe she's leaving, but he also is so scared that he won't. And it, I, it's an ultimatum that she does, but not in an ultimatum like manipulative kind of way. She's just sort of like, come with I, me, but I can't. I can't this. stay here. Right. So let's go away together. Okay, if you can't come, then I'm gonna go anyway because I cannot live under these conditions. So it's like it is a ultimatum, but not in a manipulative way. It's just yeah, it's a consequence. And then, but Jefferson Cope is there to kind of soften her. Like if she leaves, he's she has. And like, so then, as soon to. as she like leaves that room, he's like, "Hey, girl, hey." Right. <laughs> By the way, I don't know if Lennox actually calls Mrs. Boyton mother. But that's another thing that reminds me of because what our grandmother was called was mother. mother. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, So so then Mrs. Boyd sends everyone on a walk. So they're still on this walk and all this stuff is happening. Dr. Gerard is starting to come down with malaria and just and is a doctor so he's like i have to go take quinine and he knows and because he's he has malaria that has affected him ever since he caught it in some country so this is a regular recurrence for him right so and he's like i gotta go lay down and get my quinine yeah and so he leaves and then that gives he was chatting with sarah so sarah gets to tag with raymond and everybody gets to have and they all kind of and raymond is like i love you i love you i love you i love you i'm scared of my mom i love you <laughs> and uh, so they're walking around the rocks and they kind of separate and then Raymond is like I need to go do something I have to have the courage to go do something and you can't come with me Sarah and she's like okay great you do courage thing because he hasn't had any courage and then uh, they all um, and then it cuts like scene and then it goes to Poirot being asked by Colonel something, something. He's not important. Uh, but he's the British colonizer in charge of this area for <laughs> solving crimes. Right. That have to do with white people, you know. Yeah. So um, the he, the Colonel, whatever, colonizer. Uh, says to Poro, hey, you're in <laughs> Colonel town. Colonel Colonizer, I like that. <laughs> Colonel Colonizer says, <laughs> hey, you're in town. Uh, I got some information from a Dr. Gerard I think you should hear. And then Dr. Gerard comes in and he says, Mrs. Boynton is dead. Ta-da! We have a death. There's only one death. This is actually for I... Right, I we've been building to this, but Mrs. Boynton is the one who dies. Yeah. Um... And only one death in the whole thing, which is, you know, kind of low right. for her. Um, but uh, he says, Mrs. Boynton is dead, and I ha- was suffering from malaria fever, and I couldn't find my syringe, and a bunch of my digitoxin is gone. And there's and... this whole conversation about she had heart stuff, so she was taking digitalis. Digitoxin is a related drug, but much stronger. It could kill you, but if we hadn't noticed that it was missing, maybe you would have just thought it was an overdose of your regular regular medication. But also she had heart trouble because she was very overweight and um, had a lot of heart trouble anyway and was not very healthy. 
So, right. So um, she could have died of man- natural causes. She could have taken an overdose of her regular digitalis. Or, but also the syringe is missing. So maybe she was injected with digitoxin. Right. So then Poirot's like intriguing. So then he goes and says, I'm going to solve this in 24 hours. And then it's the longest 24 hours in a book you ever heard. Because like this part where he interviews his buddy is as long as the first part. Right. Where it was this whole setup. But it's nothing happens. It's just 24 hours of him talking to people about what happened. Right. But basically everybody came back from that walk. And every single person, Gerard, Lady Westholm, uh, Lennox, Nadine, uh, Raymond, Carol, Sarah, everybody came back from the walk. And then individually, and a bunch of them talked to Mrs. Boynton and said she was alive. And then at dinner time, the servant went out to get her for dinner and then said she's ill and Sarah went and said oh she's dead she's been dead for a while mm-hmm. so right. then so some people like... said they talked to her and she kind of grunted she didn't have a full conversation with anyone after that uh-uh. no except for Carol oh yeah yeah and Lennox said he put, changed to put the watch um, like wound to rotch and right. so people said that they had conversations with her and said that she was alive. And then Sarah... Wait, what did Carol say she said? That she talked to her for like 10 minutes. Oh. Yeah, I can't remember what they talked about. But, um, or what she said they talked about. Um, but then when Sarah found the body, she's like, yeah, she's been dead for a while. And there was only like a 40-minute thing between the time that Raymond, her new boo said that she had talked to his mom and then six that was at 550 and then at 630 Sarah's like yeah she's been dead for a couple hours and he's like but I talked to you know so there's right. a so he of- had said to the police or Praro I talked to her 40 minutes ago and then she and then his new love is like she's been dead for two hours but they didn't both know that information right so um Praro talks to everybody and everybody Kind of tells a story, including um, uh, oh, um, Lady Westholm and Mrs. Pierce said that um, Lady Boyton had been angry at one of the right. unnamed, unnamed um, servants, unnamed Arab people who worked there, um, and Doctor Gerard had said that he had been thinking about Ginny and Dr. Gerard's tent was right next to Ginny's um, and Ginny was busy talking about um, a sheik was coming to ca- kidnap her and that oh, right. um, she was being um, but everybody was being like oh yeah she was totally alive and then she wasn't um, and then Poirot calls is that everybody did I get everybody's story I think so yeah, and then like so, Praro calls the big reveal. Right, he does the denouement in the most Praro fashion, and he spends they spend a long time talking about why Praro is investigating in that denouement where um, Captain or 
Colonel, I already forgot. Is it Colonel or Captain Colonizer? I already forgot. Whatever. <laughs> um, is like, I called him in and because of Dr. Gerard and so they spend a lot of time doing that, but then they skip over what Dr. Gerard said. It was mm-hmm. funny because I was like, you're stretching out some of it and we're getting to hear it again. Like we were there when Colonel right. Col- Colonizer and asked for I would do this. Why do we have to hear that part of the story again? Right. But we're skipping what Dr. Gerard said. Like, wait, either he was or actually don't. Yeah, he was actually very thoughtful. Yeah. So I was a little bit frustrated was some of that scene because i was like agatha either recap everything or don't recap you know (laughs) right if we could fast forward let's fast forward (laughs) right like you don't have to tell you how you got the job she had a she had a page number (laughs) right so she's like stretch this out stretch this out um so um and then he's like basically first he's like hey raymond you said she was alive when you talked to her. Um, but Sarah said she'd been done for a couple hours. Why you keep saying that? You think Carol did it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, I don't. No, I don't. She was totally alive. She was totally alive. And Sarah's like, hey, I love you, new boo, who's totally damaged. But she was dead for a couple hours. And he's like, fine. She was dead. And I didn't know what to do. So I right. said she was alive. And basically, because Raven had and Carol had had this conversation about killing her, they both thought the other one had done it. Right. And so they're like, so, oh, shit. Like, we had this intense conversation, mm-hmm. and we both, like, sobered up or whatever, and we're like, I can't believe we talked about that, and never made a plan after that. But when she actually died, both siblings were like, oh, shit, they actually did it. Right, right. So he didn't say that she was dead because he didn't want carol to get in trouble and then carol did the same thing although she sat there for 10 minutes with her dead mom what that's crazy um and then yeah she didn't say anything and so Ginny didn't go on the walk because Ginny had been told she had to lay down by mrs boyden and right and then she said that she could come into her tent um and dr gerard had come back early because um he had the fever Mm-hmm. Um, and then Lady Westholm and Mrs. Pierce didn't go on the walk. They were kind of like in and out and like right. went and laid down or something. But um, but Raymond, then Carol, then Nadine and Lennox basically Poirot did Raymond and Carol first and then he was like, okay guys and I thought this was actually the most brilliant point about the whole book you guys never left your mom's side. You were always there at her ever beck and call and you sent one of the servants to go get her for dinner. What the hell? You all knew she was dead. Uh... And I was like, oh my God, you're so right. Like, if she was alive, there'd be no way she It doesn't track that they would just send a random servant to get her for dinner. Because everyone knows she was dead. Yeah, so basically all of them, uh, Lennox, Carol, Nadine, and Raymond all said she was alive, but she wasn't. But knew she was dead. Because they came and saw her, but then they were like, I don't know what to do. Um, 
and so, so they, they just wanted like, to be discovered by a stranger right so that's why they sent a servant to go get her um i didn't catch that so i like that part a lot was like that doesn't make any sense but then he was like so she was dead the whole time and they're like who did it and so then we come back to that moment when sarah yelled at her and said you're just pathetic and you, you know you're a petty triumphant over like just a few people and it's just sad and she said i never forget a face oh i forgot jefferson cope gave us a piece of information about mrs boyton's background that she used to be a ward in a women's prison yes although they used the word wardess which is just stupid <laughs> like does everything have to be gendered? <laughs> right. Like warden doesn't even sound like a gendered term. It's right. not like mailman. Right. So like, okay. But anyway, yeah. So she used to work in a women's prison um, before she married Mr. Boyton. Right. And apparently was older than Mr. Boyton or something like that. Anyway. So, um, so there was that information and so she had said her little thing about i never forget a face i never forget details or anything when sarah was like you're pathetic and sarah was like okay that doesn't have anything to do with me right and then perot said and there's a little bit of a like was there really evidence for this this Mm -hmm. part i thought was unclever because he was like yeah Later, Lady Westholm had said to Sarah, oh, I saw you talking to her that day. And at that point, Lady Westholm wasn't even a character, right? right. We hadn't met Lady Westholm when Sarah did her rant at her. Um, but later, Lady Westholm was like, oh, I saw you talking to her, like, back mm-hmm. in Jerusalem. Um, and so, Prara was like, when she said, I never forget a face, she was talking to Lady Westholm and saying, hey, I know you're a member of parliament, but you used to be in my prison back in right. America. Right. That was that was Mrs. Boynton's power play over this person who's like so fancy now. And they like, even go over the time when like she totally carries because they like they bring a car to go oh, on some expedition. Totally oh, yeah. She, they, the bring, most... they bring a car to go on some expedition, and she's like, it's not big enough. The brochure promised this and that, and the guy tries to argue with her, and she just, like, goes on and on and on until she get what she wants. Oh, she carries it up. And I so was that's how we really meet her, is her right. being like, and again, in the Super audio British book, Karen. she's speaking with a British accent, and she's being very privileged, like, I'm a member of parliament, you know who I am, blah, 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 blah. And right. so when Prero reveals that to be like, oh, she used to be a detainee in the prison you were wardening, wardessing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, that that was a big thing because she'd met her husband, who's, you know, Sir Lord Westerholm on a transcontinental flight or boat or something. And so. Probably there was really. a joke about that that like be careful what you what happens on these voyages right and so um so we knew she had like american roots but like she did sort of adopted into you know the british aristocracy but turns out that she had a torrid past yeah and so this is the part where 
I like it when Agatha drops clues, like the clue of why did you send a servant to go get her? Like that was a clue that should have been like, oh, she was totally dead. The family all knew it. Right. Because why would but, they go? Why wouldn't someone go get her? But the whole when um, Le- Mrs. Boynton was saying, "I never forget a face." She was actually talking to Lady Westholm, who we didn't even know was in the room. And there was no other clues about Lady Westholm except for the fact that we knew she was American. Right. So that one felt a little bit like, hey, there was no clues for us to figure it out. Right. So that was a little bit. But anyway, the, uh, the end of the story is um, they were finishing this story about like it was Lady Westholm. But she wasn't in the denouement. Who was in the room was the Boyton's, Dr. King, Dr. Gerard, and Jefferson Cope. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought that the whole conversation about um, uh, they talk about Nadine saying she was going to leave Lennox and then she went back and said she's not going to leave Lennox um, after the mom died. Um, uh, the stepmom died and they all talked about that out front in that denouement and I caught the must have thought like that has been super awkward for everyone especially so Jefferson Cope who's like okay let's just go over right because he again. she he'd literally she'd literally said I'll go with you Jefferson like all right fine backup plan guy and then and she then, was like oh but now that she's dead I don't yeah. want to go with you backup plan guy and like that it's awkward yeah, and then he was in the room for that, for them just, like, dissecting it. And that must have been, like, great. Can we talk about how I'm a loser? Wow. Um, and then, uh, but then, so they're having this, and Lady Westholm wasn't in the room. And then Agatha did the thing. They hear a she shot. Did. Because Lady Westholm's tent was next to where they were having the Praro explain everything. So she heard the whole story. And shot herself. Right. So then it's like the whole like, don't worry about the the system. Due process. Yeah. Oh yeah. Don't worry about due process. The murderer has killed themselves. It's fine. But it meant that they showed the press. The next scene was the press notice saying that um, uh, Lady Westholm died accidentally cleaning her gun while traveling. Right. And condolences to Lord Westholm, and then it all gets hushed up. Right. And then we skip ahead five years, and it's super happy fun ending. I mean, it's ridiculous because uh, Nadine and Lennox have had kids. Mm-hmm. Sarah and Raymond have gotten married. Mm-hmm. Harold, the sister, marries Jefferson Cope. Which seems and, weird. Right. Like, like this guy was puppy dogging after your sister or after your sister in law. Right. For all this yeah. time. And now he's like, okay, well, the next best thing is you. Like, just like, oh, like you can get your own boy- boyfriend from somewhere else and he could go on to another family. There's but, only, yeah. there's only, there's only that many white people. I, there's right. A, there's a limited amount. Um, and then Ginny became an actress acting right. in Shakespeare, which that was kind of perfect. which again is that sort of like trauma informed. You've been through a lot. You can you can feel all these feelings. You can draw from yeah. them. But then I couldn't tell was she with Doctor Gerard, which is then old and creepy. If I couldn't tell because he was there, 
He and was there, but oh god, yeah. I hope not. I hope she. I, oh, I hate it when they do that because I hope he was just a mentor doctor figure to her. No, you want him to, to be his her literal therapist. Th- therapist, yeah, but not any. Oh god. Well, she said something like, "You always believed in me." Yeah, but maybe that's just therapist. Yeah. You know. Oh God, I hope that's just therapist. So that was super fat, happy, fun ending. Which the reason I'm saying that is because having seen now, granted, these people were only in their twenties when the tyrannical matriarch left, but that meant that because they said something like the stepmom became their mom when the uh, kids were toddlers. So my kids' oh, age. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot so that's say 20 years of being yeah so this idea that five years later everything's fine fucked up individuals right everything's fine now and we haven't had therapy because we haven't really like you know there's the doctor but otherwise like it's not like everyone like these days everyone's in therapy but that wasn't true back then but if anybody needed therapy it'd be the people who had a maternal figure who was gaslighting them for 20 years through their childhood and then was murdered like if anybody needed therapy right and even if they did speaking of someone who knows someone who had therapy who had a tyrannical mother there's a, there's, yeah it's a lot it's not like you go therapy fixed now all done yeah, I mean, I true. suppose it didn't take them 30 years to figure out that they were being abused since they were considering killing her. Right. So it's not like they had to like go to therapy in order to just realize why they were miserable. Because I remember that day when she was like, I realized that my mom's abusive. And I sat there and I, I remember you and dad were also there and we went, uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> and she was like, can you believe it? And we're like, yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) right but for her it was like it taken years for her to get to that point right um anyway so no seriously but um but then right okay so when it comes to this like what did you think of that like and i like you looking at this in terms of this like this person has a allegory for people like that in our lives like how did you like the solution being a stranger that she had wronged a stranger Um, that she had because like it's interesting right the solution could have been anyone in the family but it wasn't anyone in the family it was a convenient right stranger that we don't care about and it allowed the family to be free and they talked about that idea of freedom a lot because when the two kids were going to kill her they would end up being the ones who suffered because they would be murderers and you know get caught in jail or if they didn't get caught, still suffer for that. Right. But because it was right. a stranger, they could all just be like, super happy fun time. She's yeah. dead. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Right, right. And that's the thing is like, it seems, well, on the one hand, I did like the analysis because they said she's not a sadist in the sense, like she's not a tyrant. She's just pathetic. And right. she wants to have control and Sarah's speech. Well, actually the trip in itself was because her kids had gotten boring to control. 
Right. She needed and, to, like, yeah. And again, and <sighs> editor me is like, are we going to say this? That's fine. Editor me can go back to this. But like, <laughs> in my relationship that had some analogies to this, like, that was similar, right? Where my partner, my spouse had some controlling issues and would do the thing where it was like there's not enough to control here let me spice it up by pushing this into something that's going to make you misbehave so I can scold you like that was familiar so like that did definitely like that tracked with my real life experience with someone who has those kind of behaviors yeah and I was thinking the same thing like I liked that like the reason she wanted to mess with Lady Westholm, and the reason she sent everybody on the walk is because she like she had fucking said, with her was fun, right? Because she, because Poirot had said the reason she sent everybody on the walk, which was a, also a weird red flag, is because she was bored of controlling them. So right. now she's like, controlling a member black- of Parliament is way more fun. Yeah, so she was going to blackmail or torture lady westholm and lady westholm unlike the kids who didn't feel like that were like well fuck you i'm just gonna kill you then right like not even a choice so that part tracked what was frustrating to me was a not getting any background of like more background about lady westholm or her mysteriousness or something so that it wasn't just like ta-da she was in prison right because we yeah because we could have never solved that yeah, and then the part, the other part that didn't track for me was um, the super happy fun five years later, there's no trauma. Because, right. like... You want years... someone to be like... I mean, I guess Ginny is just like putting her feelings on stage, but you want someone to be the fucked up person who's just like living in the basement of the other, other, other sibling. <laughs> or, you know, or something where they still have something where they have to deal with it because... I mean, I, I, it is nice to have a happy ending. And, you know, I love a happy ending. And I was rooting for these characters. But I also was like, hey, it's been five years. Not long enough since, ago. Since our tyran- ter- ter- fuck, tyrannical matriarch died. Yeah. And it is not like the people who were his, her kids. Now, granted, they were much older when she died. But much, much older. They were in their 70s. But, like... Um, maybe yeah yeah um 60s and 70s so but like it's not like they are no longer having to have impacted by yeah or trying to deal with it by drinking or whatever you know like right so it's not like the because they're gone everything is over right um but you know so that part but then you know um yeah so but so that part because the part about feeling controlled by someone i would say counterpoint okay asking agatha christie to know that in 1938 is a lot because without our personal experience without a 2021 therapy informed somatic experiencing lens i wouldn't necessarily say that five years wasn't long enough right i think it's very I mean, she gave them five years. So I would say that, like, yeah, from that lens, for her to right. say five years, ding dong, the witch is dead. 
Right. Yeah. We all and- like had a moment to breathe and get our shit together. It's been five years. I'm like, I think in real life, these things take longer than that. But also you and I are people who have taken a long track to things. And I'm not saying that we're slow. <laughs> but there but, might be other tracks, right? Right, right. Like and, I again, like I you guys you, know, you and I have both had multiple relationships and have taken up you know, therapy informed blah 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 track to understanding our emotions and blah 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 blah. But like I'm saying that there could be a faster track too. I came from a bad experience. Fair. I came out of it. In five years, that could happen. And just because it hasn't happened for us or our lineage doesn't mean it's not possible in five years. And if it's not possible in five years, which could be true because it's not true for us, but maybe it's not true for everyone. Agatha Christie, knowing that in 1938 is a lot to ask. Fair, fair. Because, <laughs> like, what year was Jung? Oh, God. Doing uh, his jam? Okay, now I'm going to look this yeah. up. But, you know, because her understanding of this idea of a person who could control people even though she was physically very ill and um that part really rang true to me because even at the end of our grandmother's life like the last five years where she was in a home our mom was still scared of her right her just existing was scary yeah, and that part was like, because she got less and less scary to me the older she got, where I was like, you know, you can't drive, you can't go anywhere, you're you're not. Right. And this, But she was still a frightening thing. Um, and so, but I thought Agatha Christie did an amazing job with that, of being like, here's a woman who is ill, overweight, like not doing well heart-wise, and somehow she is able to control young, healthy people. Right. Um, and that part rung true to me. But yeah, I guess the um, understanding about how people deal with that trauma and come out of it, um, she might not have that much understanding of it. But yeah, Jung. Okay, so Carl Jung was born, and I'm, I'm bringing him up because I kind of see him as the grandfather of modern therapy. Right, as so opposed a po- to Freud, of a Freud yeah. po- era. Yeah, I could be yeah. totally wrong about that. It's not my field, but again, so he was born in 1875, died in 1961. Okay, and but I'm just saying, like, I just don't think by 1938, right? There's a lot of were like, yeah. and again, I just think even in American culture, and we're like, and I it's probably very yeah. different in different countries, but even in American culture, in the last five years people our age and younger going to therapy on a regular basis has only just recently become normalized well and also the idea that trauma informed like acknowledging how much trauma affects people is very recent it's all very new right and so i just think that like the fact that like i think you know yes this book but every movie every piece of fiction Gets and probably nonfiction fun. is like okay yeah five years after the witch dies we're all happy yeah yeah that's a good and like point. asking Agatha Christie to know that in 1938 that it might take more time than that is a lot <laughs> right right that's a good point that's a good point and again she also didn't predict World War II <laughs> because... 
five years after 1938, there would have been no Shakespeare productions in London because they would Ooh. all have been, yeah, they would have all been, oh, all the theaters yeah. would have been. She got that out. wrong about what was happening. Ooh, yeah. See? So, like, <laughs> she can... also didn't like, yeah, did not... predict yeah. that. Flash forward five years, and like five years, actually, we know it was happening in history, and it wasn't that. It was not Shakespearean productions in downtown London. No. It yeah. Was Blitz. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you're right. You're right. Maybe I was a little bit harsh about super happy fun ending. And I think I liked it. I mean, she gave it five years, which I think is pretty good to be yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah, like. Yeah. So, I got to tell you what she did for the play. Yeah, okay. So you text me about this. So you were saying in the play, she chooses a different murderer. Tell me about this. Actually, when I was prepping for this and doing our document, I skipped that section. So, you can so I wouldn't it. read okay, it. So so you, I can, I'm hearing it from you for the first time. So the first play version of an Agatha Christie uh, uh, novel was a few years before this. And I can't remember which one. I'd have to look it up. But Agatha Christie, and I read this in the intro to a book of plays by her, the, uh, Agatha Christie was like annoyed at the um, play version because she thought it was too faithful to the novel. Oh, interesting. So she's like, no, 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 no. You have to simplify things in a play. Um, you have to cut things out so that people understand it better. So she, on this one, cut Poirot out completely. Okay. And then, obviously, for a play, they're not going from Jerusalem to Petra. They're all in the Middle East and, like, you know, in the middle of ruins, right? doesn't matter right. where. And there's one set. They don't What I do think, actually, that's a good feedback, because in both this and Death on the Nile, the change of venue wasn't necessary. Right, and so your whole criticism about how do these same people keep ending up together at different at different sites? It's like, but they didn't have to. It could have just been all set at one place, and like as the right. audience, it wasn't like it meant a lot to us. Right, they right. were at two different sites. And then, um, interesting. The basic premise was the same. I think there might have been one less of the kids, but then there's all these clues that pointed to each of the kids having done it right each of the kids had a clue against them so when she first dies all the kids are free right in the sense of like oh my god and so the sarah king was a character in this and raymond start to fall in love and the couple that was already married start to get back together i think there was no carol they just got rid of carol you know um and then Ginny was like free and they start to act like they're free but then the investigation starts and there's all these um, clues and each one points to each one of the kids individually. It's like there's a clue against each one of them and they can't figure out who did it and the suspicion. So there's this amazing scene because um, there was a scene early on in the play where Mrs. Boyton is sitting here surrounded by her kids um, kind of like looking out like she was in the book and then she's killed and the kids are like oh we're free we're free but then um, they start getting accused of this right because there's all these clues against them 
Um, and there's a scene and it really messed with me in a kind of June kind of way where Sarah's like, hey, let's go for a walk. And this is after they've been accused. All of the kids have been accused and they're like, no, we have to stay here. And they go back to where their mom had been sitting and they all they sit go around. back into the behaviors. And they go back into the behaviors, even though she is dead. Ooh. And then it turns out she killed herself and left clues, including like the whist, the winding the wrist watch scene, because there's a scene that Lennox says he wound his, his mom's wrist watch. Um, where uh, they do that and he does it and she goes ow really loud like you poked me when he does it and he's like what are you talking about loud enough for other people to hear and like there's all these like scenes where she purposely tries to get all of her kids um, or stepkids accused and then kills herself so they would all be under suspicion and under her control, even when she was dead. Oh my god! I know that is actually a really good solution. Like and that's a more like, psychologically interesting solution than like random lady from America, right? And and random lady from America turns into like comic relief. She just Karens all over the place. And like randomly just Karen's, you know, like, and so in scenes where everybody else is like, oh God, we're being controlled by this lady Westholm would just like traipse through and Karen all over the place. And it would be kind of just a funny, like, oh, entitled woman coming, you know, you know, and so she turned into comic relief. Wow. Yeah, but I just remember that. So she killed herself and tried to like control the kids. Wow. Yeah. That's a really good change to the end. Right, right. And um and so like it was but it kind of fucked me up because I remember like reading it and they had gotten free, like they were starting the process of post trauma therapy of like what can we do now she's gone. But then after they were accused they all went back to thinking like their oh, behaviors, God, get... yeah. right, which is what the thing that trauma does to you, right? Like it's not about the actual threat, right? It's about right. the behavior that's been patterned in you. So fascinating. Oh, yeah. I like that twist. Yeah. And it was, she wrote it in 45. So it was like seven years later. And, um, no, but, but... And like when you, and to bring up your criticism, right? Like I feel like in some ways that, that shows that she sees that it's not like super super happy fun when like when these things happen it's actually no this person can can still be controlling us even though she's not even here anymore right right i mean isn't that like yeah um and like yeah so it's a lot more sadistic and evil and like fun in that way like and the trauma keeps going and yeah yeah fascinating yeah so it was interesting because there's a couple of other ones is that a um, good read as a play because I, I mean besides having to read shakespeare in school i've never read plays for fun yeah and it's interesting because yeah i haven't read a lot of plays outside of ones that i was doing like i was doing um well it's not true i did take a theater class in college but 
Um, but like mostly I don't read plays for fun, but there is a book called The Mousetrap and Other Plays, which it's all plays written by her. And some are originals like The Mousetrap which until COVID was the longest running play in history because it was had started in whenever year, 40 something and had right. never stopped, but then COVID. So well, right. everybody stopped, um, but it was the longest running play forever. And then uh, this one, and there's other ones, um, uh, which she did a really good job. She had a nice theatrical mind um, and like, and she changed the ending of multiple plays, like That's this nice. one, and then like Ten Little Indians. She uh-huh. did a novel version and a play version, and the ending is different in the play. Oh wow! Okay. And then, uh, God, what's the name of the other one? The courtroom one. She has a twist at the end of the original story, and then it's a different twist. Okay, that's and impressive, so, right? Yeah, it's really good. And then, yeah, once they, the, yeah, so I think, I think she was actually a really good theatrical writer because she's right. Um, whenever we try to watch um, uh, a, like, movie or play that's from a book, we all yeah. say it's not as good. And, of course, it can't be because there's just not right. as you much. To, you have to cut things out, yeah. Right. You have to focus the, the information and the characters because people can't listen to that much information but if people try to be too faithful then it's got it's too busy yeah um and so she what's great is a production of a a theater or movie from a book that is it gets the essence right right or you know but what agatha christie was like well i'm the one who wrote it a bit originally i can make it better so she made it better and i think that the the Right, so that kind of tells you that, like, that five years or whatever, she learned a lot about what, how it actually works. Not that, like, immediately you're like, yay, it's fine. Actually, you're like, no, I'm still under her control, maybe. Right, right. And so, but it was so dark, because I remember that scene, and I didn't reread the play for this, I just reread the book. Um, But I remember that scene vividly, where they're like, hey, you can come now, and they're like, no, I have to go back and sit there with my family. it's just dark as fuck where you're like oh shit she's gone and they're still controlled yeah um but anyway uh so i uh yeah so i recommend um and i i don't think it's worth like a whole separate episode for the play to read the play yeah but for some of these it might be fun for us to like read the book and then read the play and then talk about it because she because well yeah like the movies too like in the episode we did death on the nile i hadn't seen the movie yet but now i have and i'm obsessed with it right (laughs) well because mia farrow just overacts all over the place so (laughs) she really does and she's a you know you know at the height of her like young waif era yes doe-eyed yeah so yeah but um and it's interesting how a lot of the Agatha Christie adapt- adaptations because there's a new one starring Gail Godot of Death on the Nile uh coming out uh I don't know if she plays the Mia Farrow character um but uh they throw a lot of um 
stars into Agatha Christie Productions. They always have. Yeah, they always have. It's interesting. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so the the theater productions and movie productions of them have always been uh, an interesting part of the story, of Agatha Christie's story, because they are very theatrical stories. I mean, murder mysteries are theatrical. Um, oh my gosh, so. Portia. What? The next book would be QQ Poirot's Christmas. And it's going to be Christmas time for us. There you go. How timely. How timely. So, um, yeah, so I think, um, what did you think of this story? Um, it's, okay, so we like Sarah King. Like, you and I, when we don't like it, it's because there's not a likable character. We like Sarah King. Mm-hmm. We like Nadine. We even like Jenny. Jenny. Ginevra. Like, there's likable characters. There's mm-hmm. a good villain. Um, the solution is pretty smart. But I didn't love it. Like, it has the ingredients. And actually, you telling me the solution to the play version I like better. Yeah. Um, and right. I was like, because like, Again, because we've had more time to read than we have to record, I've I read this before I went back to it, and I when I reread it, I was like, yeah, I still don't love it. Like I wouldn't have reread it for fun. So it's interesting because we do have likable characters, but I still am not crazy about it, which I really yeah. can't explain why. What about you? Yeah, the same thing because I think that I'm more bothered by the fact that we couldn't have figured it out on our own. Yeah, that's always a problem, right? Like, oh, like I love it when you go back and be like, oh, she totally told us that. I did missed it. Which in the solution of she, the woman killed herself and framed her own kids because she's all about control, that would have been able to like... Right. Um, uh, you could see that if you went you and you go back. It. But... Um, but the one like oh she was threatening this random person who was going by who also happens to be here but we had no clues about right um, yeah because the only clues that Perot did say and we, we forgot to mention this is that when um, Lady Westholm and Mrs. Pierce described the argument that they observed from separate vantage points of uh Mrs. Boynton had with random servant um, Lady Westholm was very explicit about what she saw and uh, her memory and mm-hmm. and then it was clear that Mrs. Pierce was kind of like yeah whatever and would remember and things. And Frau that- was tested to see if she was suggestible and she was clearly suggestible so right. she definitely heard what Lady Westholm said and said yeah that's what I saw too Right, because basically we didn't disclose that, but Lady Westholm has dressed up as an Arab servant, right, to do the and, killing, right, and then she pushed Mrs. Pierce to kind of like frame her memory so that her memory matched what uh, Lady which Westholm is which was. is accurate what we know about memory now it's very moldable. Yeah, yeah, that part was okay, you know, but I but the motive part was 
very like how would we never, know that yeah how would we know that and it right agatha christie works the best when there's clues dropped along the way and then we right um yeah and then we go oh right right that's so our favorite and so this one you're kind of like random outsider for outside reasons right. after this whole buildup of mrs boyton as a sadist it right. was kind of a letdown and they did tell us that she was a prison warden at a previous time but you kind of forget that right it was only to talk about her like love of controlling people right you know all right so give it a score give it a portion scale six and a half okay yeah for those reasons i think the whole she should have known not to make super happy fun ending that's not a real like criticism that's just being me being nitpicky but we couldn't figure this ending out on our own. Right. That's always a real criticism. That's like a real, like, come on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if given the play one, if that had been what the solution was, I think I would have, I would rate it much higher. And Although then, it's so much more dark. It's so much more dark and not something like, like to reread because thinking about that level of control and gaslighting is uncomfortable, especially having seen it in my own life. Yeah. Like it's not fun to be like, let's read about controlling a tyrannical matriarch who gaslight their children. Like that's right. not fun. No. You know, cause then anyway, um, and you know, going back to my point about five years later, if, the people we had known had lost that level of control when they were in their 20s. Maybe they would have bounced back a lot quicker. Right, right. It's true. Right, because like by the time you're older, as we are and our mothers are, yeah, everything, like you're more set in whatever experience you're having. So true. So yeah, yeah maybe if, you, if, if the witch dies when you're 20, maybe things are different. Yeah, maybe you can deal with that trauma better. Maybe. Who knows? But, yeah. So, um, so, okay, so anyway. 6.5. Yeah. And the next book is Hercule Christmas. Have you gotten a tree yet? No, but we have to get a tree before you come. I mean, Yeah, you, you do. <laughs> so, I think next weekend we'll get a tree. Okay. So, so next listening. time will be uh, Hercule Christmas. And thank you for listening to Paro Pod. Paro Pod.